Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War history group. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 26th of September 2022 and this is episode 271. On this week's Dispatches podcast, I talk to author and historian Dr Viv Newman about her research into children and childhood during the Great War. Viv spoke to me from her home in England. Viv, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and especially children in the Great War? Right. Um, I could give you a long answer, a short answer, but I'll give you a, a short answer. Um, I became interested in children in the Great War. I suppose I've been interested in it for a long, long, long time, because in fact, my mother, as a 12 year old, was actually taken to the unveiling of the Menin Gate in 1927. She was actually there at the actual unveiling because she had a Belgian godfather who arranged to, to take her to this sort of great, great occasion. And it remained a lasting, abiding memory for her. And she talked a lot about it. And it was something that I was very interested in. And although she was only born during the war, the fact that she had sort of, as a child, experienced this monumental, pivotal event in our national history was always something that I thought, I wonder what it was like to be a child during that era. So after I'd done an extensive amount of research in women in the Great War, I thought it was about time to look at something else. And the idea of my mum popped back into my head and the idea of looking at children in the Great War um, suddenly seemed to become a little bit of an obsession with me. So that, in fact, turned into about two years worth of fascinating, absolutely fascinating research. One of the main problems, of course, is with looking at children is what exactly is childhood? Okay, we all know when it starts, but when does it actually end? And this became a question that I nearly I had to resolve before getting too involved with the research, because the point that I needed to make was when I would stop. So I eventually decided that I would go up to um, young people, children and young people up to the age of 18, because of course, 18 was the age that a young man could officially enlist in the army. As we know, he wasn't supposed to fight overseas until he was 19, but that's a different question. Um, and so 18 seemed a good cutoff point for the boys. And for the girls, 18 was the age at which they were considered to be old enough to work in the danger sheds of munitions factories. So it seemed to me that children, for the um, purposes of my book, would go from naught to 17. So what was the view of childhood at the time? Obviously, this might vary from country to country, but maybe looking uh, maybe at Britain and, and, and a couple of other European countries, how did contemporary society look at children? Well, children were now being seen, if you like, as a group apart, um, generally. Um, in previous um, eras, there had been no real understanding that a child was in some way different other than just being a, a small adult. But by 1914, childhood was seen as being a sort of particular stage in human development, obviously with the education acts that had come in, in the, um, at the end of the 19th century. Um, all children were now expected to 
attend school at least um, across sort of Europe or our part of Europe. And the official school leaving age, even this became difficult, was supposed to be somewhere between 13 and 14, although children were taken out of school, particularly in rural areas, to help with the harvest much younger. And um, working class families definitely needed their children to go out and earn money. So they would often be taken out of school almost as soon as they'd hit their 13th birthday, which was it was then legally possible to do so, although some were taken out younger. Obviously, for more privileged families, children stayed at school much, much later, 16 or or 18 would have been an accepted school leaving age. But the other indicator that childhood was now seen as sort of a stage apart was that by uh, by 1914, most children, apart from the very poorest, actually owned a few toys. And so the fact that toys were becoming widespread also indicates to this understanding that a child's development needs to be nurtured and pedagogically and also um, that they have some entertainments that are specific to them. And in fact, toys and books for young children during the Great War became an absolutely intriguing area of research and one that I became very involved with, um, looking at how war infiltrated both the nursery, um, the playroom and children's bookshelves. And that was um, very obvious across um, the various combatant nations that I was looking at, specifically France, Germany, Belgium, and also briefly in Turkey, games and books and toys for children were that with war themes were widely, perhaps even terrifyingly available. Did you find that this sort of movement towards, I suppose, the militarisation of childhood, for want of a better word, starts before the uh, the Great War? I'm just thinking about, you know, looking at my grandfather, in a, uh, my great uncle, rather, in a sailor suit with my grandfather in a war picture and how people used to dress their, their children as, as either soldiers or sailors. But also you've got organisations like the Boy Scouts, which are sort of semi-paramilitary. Is that a wide yes. thing across Europe at the time? It, it was a was a wide theme that I that I came across 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 Europe definitely, and um, certainly as you as you said, children would be dressed in in sailor uniform b- before the war, and of course, once war broke out, they seemed to lots of them seemed to be dressed in um, military type uniforms for the boys and Red Cross nurses for the girls. Interestingly, I haven't come across one dressing up outfit. Um, for a girl of a munitions worker. I suppose that was because the nurses were seen as being um, of a different class and the munitions workers were generally seen as being working class. And so children weren't dressed in, or little girls weren't dressed in munitions workers' uniforms, but they were dressed um, in nurses and red red cross ones. And children would be dressed in, in uniform and used to raise funds. They would go out... Um, dressed in their in their miniature uniforms, two and three year olds would go out with their collecting tins in order to to raise um, money for various war charities or for the for the Red Cross. And this became a a huge money spinner. Um, And I've got some quite interesting information about children in Canada um, aged sort of two and a half and the amount of money that they actually raised when they trundled down the street in their in their uniforms. So this sort of very, very early militarization um, was taking place from the really from the get-go. And a French catalog, toy catalogue 
for um, Christmas toys for 1914. Almost every toy um, that was available and was promoted seemed to have some sort of a war theme or um, dressing up theme, board games, but um, related to the war. So yes, children were being militarized from from very, very early on, from, from the beginning. And if we actually turn to the Great War itself, could you tell us about some of the um, experiences that children went through in different countries? Obviously, it varied from place to place, um, but maybe looking at the UK and, and European countries, how did children experience the war? I know it's a huge question to ask. Huge, huge, huge question. And for some children, it was without doubt very much sort of on the periphery of their lives. Others experienced it in, in quite um, sort of terrifying ways for, for some of them. So if we start off with a, a to try and answer the question, um, with a little German girl who was 12 when war broke out called Piet Kuhr, who I became absolutely fascinated by. She kept a war diary from um, the very beginning of, of the war, from August 1914 onwards. And she makes an entry very, very early on. Um, when she's sort of consumed by patriotic fervor, that a request for has been put out to sorry, um, young German children to contribute to the war effort. And so she and her brother decide that they will melt their tin soldiers so that they can then take in these um, pieces of um, tin to contribute to the, to the war effort. So from the very beginning, Pete sees herself as a youngster, as a child, who has to contribute in some way to her country's cause and to the fatherland. And in fact, at one point, she talks about holding the tin soldiers over the gas flame, and I quote, they melted to death for the fatherland. Um, certainly for Pete, as war progressed, she became far more dubious about, the, about Germany's cause and about the rightness of war and starts to um, become much less enthusiastic in her diary. And by 1918, when she is almost starving and is very aware of the sort of total suffering that war has inflicted upon all nations, she has turned into a committed pacifist that will actually lead her to have to flee Nazi Germany in due course with only the clothes that she stood up in. So. Pete's diary allows us to trace a young German adolescence development from jingoist to pacifist. And she traces her experiences of the, of the war, ranging from, as I say, starting off melting her, melting her tin soldiers to um, trying to sort of drill her friends in the backyard to begin with, to then visiting a prisoner of war camp. Um, Russian prisoners of war were held near where she lived trying to put a little bit of food through the through the barbed wire so that they have something to eat because she's very concerned that they might be starving just as most of the German population was starving until on um, just after the armistice. She goes and puts a wreath on the grave of a French, French soldier and tells him that her thoughts are with you and all those who have died from all sides every day for the rest of my life. So it's a fascinating journey that she goes on and she takes the reader with, with her. Deeply moving, certainly something that is well worth reading because it gives a very privileged insight into how a child can develop and can mature from childhood to adolescence during these sort of four 
pivotal years in her life. Um, in terms of um, French children, um, I became very interested in the ones who were either living in occupied France or those who were living cheek by jowl with prisoners of war. And you get two very different views. The French children who um, had prisoners of war in their village, they began to see them not as bogeymen, but as part of, if you like, their um, their entourage and their, their life. And they became quite, some of them became quite friendly with the Bosch prisoners of war. And they realised that in some ways the prisoner was almost replacing their own father who was absent at the front. And a few of the more intuitive understand that they as children are replacing the children that the prisoner of war has left behind in, in Germany. And you see a relationship um, develop between the two sides. One little boy um, whose grandfather was a carpenter and they had a POW, a Saxon um, prisoner of war um, working for them who was also a carpenter. And he made these little boy, this little boy, some wooden figures that he cherished when he showed them to his grandfather. His grandfather told him that he had to throw them away because they were made by the, the enemy. And the little boy couldn't see this prisoner as an enemy. So he buried them in the in the garden and then he would rescue them. And he kept them till the end of his his life. And to him, they were almost representing the fact that friendship could grow up between those who were supposed to be enemies. For the children in occupied France and occupied Belgium, their experiences were very, very different um, and often quite hair-raising because they, they certainly saw the occupier as the enemy and did everything that they could to be disruptive and difficult as far as the enemy was concerned. I had two very, very good sources, a little French boy, Yves Congar, and a German and a French girl, Germaine Parouy, um, both living in occupied Sedan, um, both kept diaries throughout the war. Yves was um, published um, about 10 years ago, actually sort of as a published um, book, which, which one can buy complete with his illustrations. Germaine's was was lodged in a in an archive, and I was able to use that. And what is very interesting is seeing the stories that they both choose to recount, and again how you see them develop in their understanding of what's going on. And to begin with, Eve, who was only I think nine when the war broke out, he's just a naughty little boy and tries to disrupt the enemy by doing naughty things like spitting at them. And then as he gets older and he matures, he begins to understand um, what is happening to Sedan and becomes very fearful for the townspeople. Um, Germaine is, is a bit older. She was 30, 14 when the war broke out. And so she's already got a, a very different slant on what's going on. And she becomes very, very fearful of the way the, if the Germans are treating those who they are occupying, brutally how much worse is it for those who family members who are prisoners of war and um, working as forced laborers in Germany and she is very worried about the financial implications for the for the town and for her her parents who she she sees um, becoming ever more burdened by the by the war and 
both children, as the war is starting to come to its end, they become very fearful, rightly so, of how the rest of France is going to view the occupied northern portion of France. And they fear that their sufferings will be overlooked and that they will in some ways be considered to have been in some way collaborators and that the um, free French, if you like, will almost be embarrassed by the fact that northern these areas of northern France were occupied and that they would be either written out of the story of the war, which was very perceptive of both of them because I think it did largely happen, or that they would almost be accused of being les boches du nord and having um, not resisted the enemy and stood up. They almost allowed themselves to be overrun. So it's interesting that these two young people are looking to a future that they feel will be very bleak for them once France is finally free. So those were those were two very, very interesting sources that I that I used. Um, I also looked a little bit at Belgian children who were obviously also living with the, the enemy um, and they were suffering again from significant levels of starvation. And there was one um, little Belgian girl who was um, 10 and was actually shot by the, by the Germans for having tried to share her bun um, with a prisoner of war. And she was actually shot and became, if you like, very much a, a symbol of Belgian martyrdom and what had happened to two Bel Belgian children during during the war. So so their, their experiences of living with the enemy um, were, were fascinating. And I became quite involved in, in researching this this aspect of the children's war. Perspectives from the United Kingdom and Ireland. Did you uh, cover those as well? Um, I looked at. English children, yes, um, up to a point. Their experiences were obviously, I think, very different because they um, were not living as close to the to the front as the the those the other children that I've I've talked about. Um, I found one fascinating um, series of compositions that had been written by a group of um, boys living in um, in Hoburn. And they wrote about the Zepp raid of um, October 1915. It was obviously set as a, a school homework um, to write a composition. And so it was, was fascinating to see how what they had, each, what the different boys had found as worthy of, of reporting and writing about. Some wrote in a very, very sophisticated manner about the both the mixture of the fear and the excitement of actually seeing a Zepp raid. Others, um, one, one child became very worried about the fact that his mother had lost Tuppence Hapenny um, because she'd gone outside to look at the, with the money in her hands, she'd gone outside to watch the, to look at the air raid and she dropped the money. And this became almost sort of an obsession with him. You know, what's my mother going to do? She's lost this money. And obviously this meant quite a lot to them. Um, and others were, were very, very excited that if you like, they had actually had a chance to see the war at first hand. I also looked in a certain amount of detail about some children who were caught up in, a, um, in an air raid over Folkestone and um, some of whom tragically were, were actually killed by this, by this raid. And I looked at the effect of these children's deaths on the families who had survived. And that became rather, rather fascinating because we tend to look at how children react to, to war deaths of 
adults and male kin, but to suddenly get some insight on how those who lost to children through enemy action, if you like, how they came to terms or didn't come to terms with the with their deaths, and how the, the city of Folkestone was particularly outraged at the death of innocent children um, in through through this this particular action. So that that became um, a, an interesting topic to to research. And then I also looked um, at the children who lost their lives on the Lusitania, um, because we, we hear a lot about the, the Lusitania. And I had a, a group of, I think it was about five or six children, some of whom survived, some of whom um, were drowned, um, and looked at their, their stories on board this, this ship, and obviously the sort of the randomness of who, who survived and who, who didn't and then tried to trace what had happened to these, these children um, who'd survived during the war and which ones were, whose bodies were actually recovered and how, um, how that sort of grieving process took, took place. So those were, were sort of quite big areas of, of research for children. And then I also looked at the children who died in the Silvertown explosions. So... Um, those were the, the sort of areas for, for British children that I particularly focused on because I wanted it to be really sort of the impact of war upon a, a child's life. So those, those seemed to sort of fit the, fit the bill and answer the research questions that I posed myself. And did you look at sort of child POWs, internees and maybe displaced people? Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking really I about did. Belgian refugees. Yes, yes. Um, I didn't look at the... Uh, the Belgian refugees, because I, I know there's been quite a lot of work done on on Belgian refugees. But so I decided to look at some other displaced people. Um, came across a fascinating story about a German family and child, two children, who they they'd lived deep in eastern Germany, just on the on the border with with Russia, and how they were taken as prisoners of war and actually spent the rest of the war in, in Siberia. And um, my, my source, and Elizabeth Suka, who was a, her father was a, a school teacher, and he had encouraged her to keep a diary of their internment. And what was very interesting was to watch how her views of what was happening changed. At the beginning, she was absolutely terrified. And then once they got to Siberia, and started to live with um, the Siberians, you, you begin to realise that she is realising that these people far from the war are basically just like us. And she talks about the similarities between the, the Siberians and the German POWs and how they have developed a, a rapport and a relationship. And she, um, she talks about her, her time in, in Siberia um, eventually, quite fondly, um, once she's, she's got through the initial shock of what has happened. So I looked at um, her diary and then another group of children who um, story seems particularly poignant today is the Ukrainian children who lived in Canada. And in 1914, as um, about 20% of the Ukraine um, was part of the then Austro-Hungarian Empire. The fact that Ukrainians loathed Austro-Hungary seemed to be neither here nor there in the official Canadian mind. 
because they decreed that all um, Ukrainians were enemy aliens and they interred them. And well, something in about sort of 200 odd Ukrainian children were actually interned in little more than prisoner of war camps, moved from one end of Canada to the other um, and spent the um, all of the war years behind um, barbed wire as internees. And then ironically, at the end of the war in 1918, um, they were no longer considered a threat of being Austro-Hungarian. They were now considered a Bolshevik threat. So they remained behind, a lot of them remained behind barbed wires, barbed wire until 19, 1920. And their, their story is still, the Ukrainian internees is still very much um, not acknowledged very widely in, in Canada. And so to try and understand what had happened, I got in touch with um, the Ukrainian Canadian Association, who provided me with significant amount of information and help and put me in touch with um, descendants of the of the internees so I was able to get some sort of understanding of how it had completely scarred the descendants young life with their parents um, deeply deeply shamed by what had happened to them which I found interesting that they actually felt that this period in their their lives was shameful as opposed to thinking about what, what the Canadian government had done to them as being shameful they they actually felt a shame as well, of having spent several years um, in in prison, basically. And did you find any children who served as combatants during the war? Yes. Um, I carefully avoided the British boy soldiers. I feel they've been rather um, sort of looked at and looked at and looked at again. So I looked at um, a couple of French um, boys who ran off to the, to the war. I looked at a Cossack girl who um, her father was a colonel in, a, in with the Cossacks, and she she ran off to the to the war um, in July 1914 and served all, all the way through. Um, and then she was from a, a well-to-do family. And when the revolution broke out, she then had to escape from from the Bolsheviks. And her story was absolutely fascinating with um, the fighting that she had she had done on the on the. Eastern Front, which, of course, in the UK, we don't seem to know an awful lot about. So I, I tracked her war and her development from a very naive girl who just thought it would be exciting to run off to the war to how she then became very much aware of the, the true horrors of war. Um, but yet her determination to go on serving with the with the Cossack regiment. I also looked at a, um, a couple of French French boys, both of whom I found absolutely intriguing. One who um, served at, at Verdun and um, had the opportunity to read the the diary that he he kept um, relating to his service at, at Verdun, which he amazingly survived. Um, but he then um, joined the wanted to join the French Air Force, which he which he did, and sadly he was killed in March um, 1918. And I also looked at a French boy from Marseille who I called Disobedient Désiré because he stowed away on board, a ship. having tried twice to get um, to Alsace-Lorraine. He, he was turned back with a flea in his ear on both occasions and, and sent back to Marseille. So on the third occasion, he decided he'd try his luck as a stowaway, um, stowed away on board the French ship La France 
that was losing, leaving Toulon and ended up um, in Gallipoli. So his, his story was rather, rather fascinating, ended very, very tragically. He was just um, a couple of weeks past his 13th birthday and he was killed in Gallipoli on the 8th of May, um, 1915. And he, he was eventually, he became, if you like, the, the face of the underage French um, French soldiers, they they there was a um, a group of that was that was organised post post war to commemorate the um, the activities and the actions of the the young French boys who had enlisted and died for for France, and he became, if you like, almost the sort of the figurehead of this organisation. So, what was the legacy? for these young people who survived the war? I know that's obviously a huge, huge, huge subject in itself. <laughs> huge. Um, I suppose that for many of them, the thing that struck me that they wrote about post-war was once the sort of initial euphoria of it being over for the um, children, the victorious children, if you like, once the euphoria was over, more than anything is that they found life boring. You know, that typical child thing of boring. Um, once the excitement was over, they began to look back on the war years with a certain nostalgia that um, life was never quite as exciting again. They had to suddenly um, get on with, with schoolwork and they were expected to be, to be children again. And so they, they actually, I think if they'd looked at their pre-war selves, they would never not have recognised them. Some of them harked back to their wartime selves and were quite fed up that all the excitement was over and that if you like um, parents and um, teachers and carers now had much more interest in them and so that they had to go back to being a child which many of them felt that they weren't. They felt that their experiences had set them apart both from the younger generation who hadn't really experienced the war and because they had experienced it in a very specific way they also felt quite detached from um oh the older generation as well there was this sort of a group of of people who who had grown up in such exceptional circumstances that would never really be understood um by those who hadn't experienced them a little bit like you know soldiers coming home from from the war and nobody really understands their experiences i think that there was a generation of children that this was also the case for that they had lived such an extraordinary four years that nobody could who hadn't lived it in the same way could fully understand what they had gone through what they had experienced and how they had come to terms with it and finally where can people get your book um, it's published by Pen and Sword. It's called Children at War, um, 1914 to 1918. And it's certainly, it's um, also available on Amazon from all good booksellers. And it covers a very, very wide experience. As, as we've, we've probably gathered, I tried to range as widely geographically as I could. And I was able to take advantage of the fact that I speak fluent French and read German quite easily. I don't speak German very fluently, but I can read it quite easily. So I was able to um, use some perhaps different archives and different sources, and they've all come into the into the book. So hopefully um, 
it's it's worth reading for anybody who wants to get a slightly alternative view of the Great War. Viv, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.